Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union labels. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show. We are the permanently solvent and stable investment bank of militant moderation, and we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. Unlike some other banks I could name, we'll never need a bailout around here. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today on this momentous day in the financial industry where uh, Joe Biden has saved investment banking. I don't know if you've seen the media spin on what's happening with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, but they're trying to hail Biden as some kind of hero because he stepped in with a bailout and saved this investment bank whose complete collapse and all of its depositors losing their money uh, would have just ruined everything. That could have caused an economic cascade that would have destroyed the financial system as we know it, maybe, who knows. But Joe Biden stepped in and saved the day. I saw one headline, I think it was at Politico, and it said something like, in 72 hours, Joe Biden transformed the banking industry which is a lot like saying that in 72 hours, Nero transformed Rome. I mean, because Joe Biden caused this. Joe Biden's policies, make no mistake, this is a Joe Biden disaster. It has his name written all over it. His inflationary policies are the immediate cause of Silicon Valley banks collapse because all of their bonds were suddenly worthless because of Joe Biden's inflation and their financial scheme just disintegrated overnight. It's his mega government that somehow didn't notice all of this was going to happen. The rest of us are regulated eight ways to Sunday. If you do the wrong thing, you say the wrong thing, you, you misgender somebody, you're going to have squads of enforcers coming down on you. But uh, this bank can suddenly be insolvent overnight with billions of dollars in assets and all the federal regulators, the same guys who missed Bernie Madoff for 40 years, shrug and say, we we never saw this coming. (laughs) What a surprise. I mean, somehow it seems like when you ask our multi-trillion dollar mega Leviathan government to do any of the stuff it's supposed to be doing, uh, it never gets it right. It's one freaking disaster after another. And here is another catastrophic failure of regulatory oversight. You know, the Silicon Valley Bank, it passed a major audit something like five days before it collapsed. And the auditors all said, nope, no problems here. Everything's looking great. But then on top of that, one of the big reasons why Silicon Valley Bank collapsed is because it fell in for all this ESG garbage, this fascism where private uh, companies are being told they must invest in government certified uh, green and environmental and equity organizations that have the correct politics, never mind what your stockholders need, never mind the fiscal health of your institution, never mind return on investment. Your first thought should be, am I making an investment that would make the commissars of the left proud of of my high politics? And these guys did this and they took a bath. And now you and me and everybody else are on the hook to bail them out. 
if there's one thing I really hate about this SVB crisis, the thing that is just making me crazy watching the news unfold, it is this ridiculous lunk-headed spin that we're not going to bail the bank out. It's it's not a bailout. No, it's uh, we're going to rescue. It's going to be relief, uh, just a little relief there. But don't worry, you're not going to pay for it. No, no, you're, you're fine. This is not going to be a taxpayer bailout. No, what we're going to do is we're going to make the rest of the banking industry, including the chumps who did everything right and played by the rules, they're going to pay for this gigantic bailout. We're talking billions of dollars here. This is not a small thing. This is the biggest financial collapse since the 2008 crisis. So we're going to make the rest of the banking industry fork over billions of dollars in order to make SVB's depositors whole so they don't lose their money. And then how are they going to get that money back? Uh, don't know. Uh, gee, I guess maybe they might just pass it on to you, the taxpayers, your customers. <laughs> I mean, how stupid are we supposed to be to listen to these shills at the White House telling us, oh, it's not a bailout. Don't worry about that. We're just going to make sure all these people get their money back uh, with, with what? Keebler elf cookies, fairy dust, pixies. They got unicorns down in the treasury just, just you know, pooping out money. It, it's just insane that they think we're all supposed to forget that this is going to be yet another taxpayer bailout of yet another left wing destroyed institution and they're scrambling for ways to blame it on somebody who isn't a lefty so they fixated on donald trump of course and they're trying to claim this is the, the lamest spin of all and i don't think it's even still operative anymore i think they gave up on this yesterday when they got laughed out of the room but they were trying to claim that sometime during the trump administration he made some tiny adjustment to banking regulation and that was what enabled this bank to spin madly out of control as though he had mind controlled these nice lefties that ran the silicon valley bank in california and he forced them to all become you know, criminals overnight or something. And that's why the bank fell apart. And when other observers detected this idiotic spin and began pointing out that the bank reforms in question were not only A, pretty small and had little to do with SVB, but also B, were almost unanimously supported by Democrats, then they shut up and retired that talking point. So you might still see it pop up on cable news here and there, but it's not really alive anymore. No, the big story we're going to hear now is that, thank heavens, we have our mega federal leviathan, all-knowing central state that is going to step in and fix this problem and pay off all these depositors, and then they'll write up some nice new regulations uh, you know, that'll fix everything. Meanwhile, there was another bank that went belly up over the weekend. There, there were actually three. There was a third bank that went down last week, and it wasn't noticed as much because they were much smaller than these other guys, but they were still you know, billion-dollar bank. But this other bank that went down over the weekend was Signature Bank over in New York. And they also had a somewhat similar problem with suddenly their finances didn't work, their balance sheet didn't work, their investments weren't working, they're insolvent. So they collapsed and regulators are stepping in to shut them down. You know who works for that bank, who's a partner in that bank? Barney Frank, the man who almost single-handedly destroyed the entire financial system of the earth back in the in 2008. I am not kidding. This this guy is criminal number one. If you want to look for somebody who almost took out the entire world as you know it, back in 2008, it would be Barney Frank. Him and Chris Dodd and Barack Obama were all big players in this crackpot scheme that they came up with to let people take out mortgages they couldn't repay. And that snowballed into an avalanche of debt and the whole system just exploded. But Barney Frank would be the most guilty of the three by far. And, and here he is presiding over this bank that is now collapsing in flames. And he says, uh, you know, gee, I don't think all these other regulations should apply to me. Oh, no, 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 no. I thought you people all needed to be better regulated. But don't, don't expect to regulate my behavior. I know what I'm doing. 
I mean, it's such a scam. It always has been. Everything about the regulatory state writ large, not just banking, but in, in every respect, the regulatory state is just this multi-trillion dollar colossus pumped full of funny money and imaginary funds and accounts pumped full of IOUs and bills they just keep printing out of the treasury like mad. And the whole thing is just a scheme to conceal how freaking incompetent so many of the people that run it are. And a lot of those people are bankers. Yeah. You know, when you talk about something as huge as the 2008 financial crisis, sure, a lot of bankers did stuff that was reprehensible and that contributed to the problem. But that whole nightmare started with government regulations. That didn't start with the bankers. They were part of it. They joined in the fun and contributed mightily to what happened with some bad decisions. But it all began with politicians deciding that they knew better than the economic system. They knew better than the mortgage system. They, the politicians, would wisely decide that if you're a, a coffee barista at Starbucks, why shouldn't you have a $300,000 house? Well, it was just cruelty and racism that were preventing you from getting those nice loans that you needed to participate in the joy of homeownership. And so they engineered the system that rather speedily, in, in the matter of a decade less, uh, inflated into this giant balloon and blew up and almost took out the entire planet's financial system in the process. And those people, the politicians who did that, they weren't really punished in any meaningful way. Barack Obama went on to become the president of the United States, and he had his fingerprints all over it. Barney Frank, he retired on his own terms, and now he's involved in this bank. Uh, Chris Dodd, he didn't go to jail. Nothing happened to him. None of these people suffered. The Democratic Party didn't suffer. These guys are all Democrats. And for a bad moment or two in 2008, you have to really have been watching this unfold in real time to have seen this. But there were a couple of days early on in the 2008 crisis where the likes of Nancy Pelosi were scared to death the Speaker of the House, the Democrat Speaker of the House at the time, because they thought this crisis was going to kill them as a party. They thought they were over because people were going to understand that it was their policies that caused this and they were just going to get bounced out of Washington. They didn't know how, how this was going to hurt them. So they went into spin mode and they, they kicked it into overdrive. They went work with the media. They rewrote the story of what was happening and they managed to skip away scot-free. And not only are some of those people still in power or retiring on their own terms uh, as they grow to a very advanced age, but their ideology, their party is still very much in power. If there's one thing we haven't learned since 2008, it's that we're still letting this titanic, blind, idiotic giant of a government micromanage everything. And it's thoroughly incompetent at almost every one of the tasks it has assigned to itself. Banking regulation? Uh, not so great. You know, they, they claim vast powers to micromanage the financial system, but look what actually happens. They don't notice anything bad is coming before it hits them right in the face. They don't put in regulations that wisely manage our money or help us to be more secure in our transactions. Instead, they impose political agendas on us. They look at the whole economy and see a piggy bank full of money to raid. That is the mindset that caused this banking collapse. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Ingelheim. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are 
are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Fibronir Program. To learn more about Fibronir and eligibility requirements, visit fibronir-ipf.longboat.com and fibronir-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart and don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans' organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at PVA.org.
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Our next guest says that there have now been four great crises in the 21st century, which is not old. It's 2023, so we're not even a quarter of the way done with the 21st century. And we've already had four massive crises that have each been exploited by the government to expand its power and its regulatory reach, with the Silicon Valley Bank collapse being the fourth. And he has an idea that what we really need is a regulation that will stop the government from taking advantage of these crises to make itself bigger. Joining us now is Wayne Cruz, Fred L. Smith Fellow in Regulatory Studies at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and author of the annual report, 10,000 Commandments, an Annual Snapshot of the Federal Regulatory State. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Hey, John. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. 10,000 commandments is a lot of commandments, and that, that's, that's what <laughs> that's we're all laboring Well, we're way past that in. now. <laughs> and and I noticed know, it, that it somehow— when I started out. <laughs> it, it's not helping us, though. I mean, these, it's clear that right. we have the worst of all worlds. We have a regulatory colossus, but it's incapable of actually dealing wisely with any of the challenges that confront us. It never makes things any better. It's just setting us up for the next disaster, which just happened last week. You bet. You know, I started this report, uh, 10,000 Commandments, looking at what, what you might call the hidden tax of, of federal regulation, because no matter how much you may despise deficit spending and the debt, you can always look those up, but you can't do that with respect to regulation. So I started putting these things together on economic, health and safety, social, paperwork, all these regulatory costs. And they just like <laughs> just if, if you think of uh, federal spending and it being out of control, even with Congress voting on it, imagine regulation, which is the least disciplined of all. Uh, it, it's expanding out of control. And you mentioned the four crises. What struck me during during COVID and now what strikes us again now with respect to these bank bailouts is every time, and just in the 21st century, every time there's been a crisis, the federal government has responded with new laws creating new agencies like DHS, like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, like the new programs in the wake of COVID, always responding with new programs and new agencies and new spending that never goes goes away, and it never ratchets back down to the pre-crisis level. And, you know, you, you can see all the... You know, all of the arguments against the bailout that happened yesterday was, yeah, well, taxpayers really are on the hook. What it's really done, though, is sent the signal. Regulation is supposed to alleviate risk, so to speak, but instead, depositors and bank management now has the message that, well, if they do screw up again, the, the depositors and the risk takers are going to be bailed out yet again by the federal government. So what I've, I've, what I had proposed, and this came after the, the uh, COVID crisis, <clears throat> you were talking about trillions of dollars in new spending. We've got to come up with some way, John, of expanding intergenerational wealth rather than intergenerational government debt like we're doing now, or we're going to be in a real fix. I think we already are in a fix. We've already ruled out limited government in a number of ways. But, you know, it's, it's a broad agenda we don't have – we can't get into here. But by and large, a lot of the things that the federal government is doing have to be shifted back to the state and local governments as well as back to communities and households. 
That involves tax policy. That involves insurance reform, which is particularly relevant with respect to the bank bailouts. It also revolves, involves discipline and punishment of politicians who are predatory and continue to exploit these crises. So we, there are a lot of things we've got to do. So it's a broad program, but it's got to wrestle down the spending and regulation. That's you've touched on a couple of important things there. Generational wealth among the public mm -hmm. has been under attack. It's almost unheard right. of now. And part of that is deliberate policies in many ways, ranging from talking people out of the traditional idea of getting married, having children, mm -hmm. passing your wealth forward to the next generation. That's been obliterated by social policies Absolutely. over the past few decades. And, uh, and if you do actually have some money, then Uncle Sam is right there, ready to clip as much as he can out of your inheritance with these aggressive tax policies that they hit people with when they try to roll wealth forward or invested in corporations. So really, the only thing we do accumulate anymore is debt. And I'm just amazed that anybody can look at the crises you mentioned, the, these great generational crises and the response to them from 9-11 to the COVID crisis. And, you, and people think, yeah, let's have more government. Are you crazy? They're the people that did this. Why do you keep trusting the people that make it worse over and over again? Why do you vote for them? That's right. There's got to be some kind of a separation of state and economics, and we're definitely not getting that. In fact, I'd submit to you, and this occurred to me when you when you observe the different programs with respect to unemployment and so forth that, ha that were put into place during COVID, the left's North Star is the universal basic income. If, and you can see that in terms of stimulus checks and bailouts and the unemployment and happened in 2008. If the left has got everybody hooked on getting those kinds of payouts, even when, the, when it's not needed, and there was a lot of discussion about this back during COVID, you know, they, they've really cemented their, their constituency as far as getting people to vote for them, and it really cuts against the notion of intergenerational wealth. That, you know, that's a complicated thing, but people have got to be able to keep more of their earnings, and you mentioned inheritance taxes and things of that sort, but you've got to get deep. I mean, we're about to have another fight over the, uh, over the debt ceiling, and the claim is, oh, well, we can't touch the entitlements because people expect it. Well, guess what? Most of the world's population has not been born yet. <laughs> you know, most of the jobs to be created have not been created. So why not, hey, when they come into your hospital with you, when you've got the hospital room and you've got that newborn, how about not signing them up into Social Security? And how about instead setting up accounts for a child at that age that grows and, you know, grows into over a million dollars by the time someone is, uh, is, uh, is at retirement age? You've got to have alternatives to government in every walk of life. That's in, you know, fractional reserve banking and why not charter banks that do a little bit less fractional? <laughs> and, you know, everything from the way we deal with environmental calamities, the way we deal with the, the homeowner crises, all of these things have, there are market solutions to so many of these problems, but the knee-jerk response is always for the federal government to step, not even the state and local governments, but the federal government to step in. And a lot of the state, pro, the state dominance or predominance that should exist has been taken away by the federal government passing block grants back to the states on everything from education to fuel to, you know, job training and, and on down the line. The federal government is taking over massive amounts of what ought to be state duties. So it's a major, major downsizing effort that, that has a lot of moving parts. But I think that's what the 108th Congress needs to be laying some groundwork for, because otherwise we just spiral out of control. And as we see, you have a few, in, few institutions that have, have a lot of power, not so much that it's market power, 
but that the regulatory structure has given them kind of power that makes it too sim- too systemic, too fail to big. <laughs> you know, it's what, what? The, the opposite of what they normally say is 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 the way is the way we govern things. Well, we know, we notice we keep seeing that every time one of these big crises explodes, you have these big players that don't play by the rules. The federal government's micromanaging yeah. the rest of us, but you get Silicon Valley Bank, and they just decided not to buy a deposit insurance for their big deposits, and all these people are suddenly at risk, and we're going to have to make them whole. I mean, we're getting bird dogged every minute of our lives, but the big players they keep getting excuses and passes and get out of jail free cards, and nothing ever really comes back to hurt them in any way. And when you do that, we always end up holding the bag, as is going to be the case with the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Wayne Cruz, Fred L. Smith Fellow in Regulatory Studies at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Not everyone is a morning person, and that's okay. At Burger King, we let you be you and have your morning your way. With a variety of menu items made just for you, satisfy any craving on any morning. Feeling savory today? How about a croissant sandwich? Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant. Perfect with hot or iced coffee. Is bacon more your thing? We do that, too. Try a bacon, egg, and cheese croissant sandwich with crispy bacon, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant. Try it with an ice-cold Coke. Or maybe you're craving something sweet. Then French toast sticks are sure to satisfy. Golden brown, piping hot, and perfect for dipping in a side of sweet syrup. Pair it with a Simply Orange juice. Why not? It's your morning. Complete your breakfast combo meal with hash browns and a beverage of your choice. Have your breakfast your way. Because morning person or not, you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants, sponsored by Coca-Cola. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. What are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! 
What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. Well, one of the businesses that's been having a rough time of it since the end of the coronavirus pandemic is the fabled Papa John's pizza chain, which saw its sales decline considerably as the pandemic, which was nirvana for all kinds of food delivery, came to an end. And it just had a very disappointing fourth quarter earnings report that sent its stock plummeting. And here with us to talk about that state of affairs is none other other than Papa John himself, Papa John Schnatter, the founder and the former CEO of Papa John's Pizza. Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It, it's sad to see a place like Papa John's. I've enjoyed their pizzas many times over the years. Sad to hear that they're having trouble. And I've looked over your analysis of the problems that your former chain has been suffering. And I just have to ask, how the heck did they forget how to make pizza? They're doing everything except that, and that's killing them, isn't it? People just don't love their pizzas much anymore. Well, you know, in a hyper-competitive category like pizza and pizza delivery, um, you have to be really on your game in all aspects. And Papa John's from the get-go, from the broom closet, um, our point of differentiation was authenticity, was quality. I mean, Little Caesars was price, Domino's was speed, pizza was variety. So we decided to be America's largest independent pizzeria and own the quality positioning. And when you have uh, 40,000 independent pizzerias who are making great pizza, 
you have uh, three other chains, Little Caesars, Domino's, and Pizza Hut making good pizza. You got frozen pizza at four, five, six bucks. You have to be really, really um, acute and on point with your product quality. And when I left the company in uh, 2018, uh, John, the first thing they did was get rid of the measurement system for quality, the matrix to measure. And if you don't measure the quality of the product uh, with the franchisees and the corporate operators, they simply will not do it. And I've seen this movie three times before where we got away from our quality and we had disastrous uh, results. So um, they changed the recipe. They changed the, the way they weighed the ingredients, uh, the measurement system, uh, not only on the amount of ingredients, but the pizza. And their quality has slipped. And I've been harping on that for several years now, but it's still on death ears because they had COVID. And with COVID, you know, everybody was locked at home. Um, you had uh, government checks going out. Alcohol consumption was up 40%. So everybody's partying, eating pizza. And probably the worst thing that could happen to the now CEO, Rob Lynch, was he came into a situation where it was easy. You know, you have a monopoly. You have a captive audience because of COVID. And now those chickens have come home to roost where um, they they left that position. And now they're back to the real world. And um, they've left themselves in quite a mess. I remember working in the pizza industry myself back when I was in college, which was a long time ago. And uh, back then, even then, we understood it was discipline that made this work. It was the quality of the pizza. It was doing things right. And it's a it's a restaurant. It gets crazy. You know, the, the orders come flooding in. And it's the way that people commit themselves to the, the quality of it all, that they understand that, that makes it work. And it seems like, as you say, maybe having a, a sort of a fat year here with the uh, COVID pandemic, a couple of them, would lead people astray. But how do they get back to that? What what do you think they should do in order to restore the strength of the business? Well, there's four aspects of the quality position. One is the quality of the ingredients, which uh, we always um, – better ingredients, better pizza wasn't a slogan. It was a way of life. We did have superior ingredients, uh, less chemicals, less additives, and more real, wholesome, uh, authentic ingredients. Two is you have to put it together right. Three, you have to measure to make sure that the people at the store put it together right because you can have the right ingredients, and if you don't put it together right, it's not a good pizza with a good bake. And fourth, if they do right, you've got to incentivize them with bonuses and, and rebates to make sure they got it right. But the when the COVID, um, you know, uh, really was a bonanza for our sales at Papa John's was going on, I was screaming from the rooftops, hey, we need to buckle down, get our balance sheet in shape, get make sure our quality, make sure we're taking care of our people, make sure our basics are are fundamentally sound, why things are good, so that when COVID's gone and things are not so good, we built a nice war chest to get through that. Uh, Rob Lentz, the CEO at Papa John's, got caught on his heels because he thought COVID was the norm. And the problem with it when you've got a CEO like Rob Lynch is if you got somebody that's incompetent and they know they're incompetent, then you could work with them to become competent. Rob doesn't have any experience in the, in the pizza restaurant. Uh, the board of directors and the people in the C-suite have no industrial, historical, um, institutional knowledge of the pizza business. So you've got incompetence that thinks it's competent. That's a very dangerous formula. 
You made a fascinating point in the op-ed you wrote for Newsmax about Papa John's travails, where you mentioned that some of the promotions that they run in order to try to win business back end up really hurting the individual store's bottom line because pizza restaurants, like a lot of small businesses, run on very thin profit margins, much more so than most people who don't run a business really understand. They think that a popular pizza joint is a license to print money, but in fact, just having a couple of percentage points more coming off the top because of a promotion can be enough to hurt the finances for your store for an entire quarter. That's the two things I find mind-numbing, kind of unbelievable about this whole situation. One is they're doing $5.99, $6.99 national promotions. Um, That's a 38 to 40% food cost at $2 a pound of cheese. When we were there, if we ran a food cost as high as 33, 34, the franchisees would scream bloody murder. So how Rob Lynch is selling this to the franchisees to run a national promotion at 38%, I find that kind of fascinating. Um, it's not, I really don't understand it. The second thing that's a problem for the company and overall stra- uh, strategy is they commoditize this business. In other words, they're doing 699 national promotions. And their transactions, if you look at last quarter's uh, math, the mathematics on the distribution company versus the sales, they're losing traffic. So they commoditize the brand so bad with subpar pizzas, mediocre pizzas, not good service, bad image, that even when they do a 699 national promotion, they, they still lose customers. That's commoditization of the brand. That's a very bad place to be. We spend billions of dollars protecting the moat around that castle on the overall strategy of quality, better ingredients, better pizza. And it looks to me from the outside looking in that they've lost that. Well, of course, also, I'm sure that this industry, like many others, is hurting from inflation and inflationary pressures are pushing up the cost of food, the ingredients you use to make the pizza, and also the cost of gas, which factors into pizza delivery businesses. It is not easy to come out of COVID, which is business raining from the sky because everybody's locked in their house, and then find yourself in this new world where inflation is cutting even deeper into a very thin profit margin. Well, the research we did, if you make a what we call a, a 10 pizza on a, on a 10 sale scale, a 10 point scale, you can get a dollar and a half to two dollars and fifty cents more per pizza. We've done the research. And so to your point, Papa John's is having a discount, i.e. six ninety nine national promotions, and they're losing that two to three dollar premium on the pizza because of the mediocrity of the product. So. They need that $2 a pie to cover all these inflationary uh, costs, uh, commodities, utilities, insurance in Florida is impossible, rents are going up, like you said, fuel's going up. And when you commoditize a business and you're selling on price, then you're going to be robbing Peter to pay Paul to pay your fixed cost and your variable cost. I have to think also that one other uh, result of the pandemic is that we're emerging from a period where more competition rose up, not just in pizza, but in food delivery in general. We've all seen that. We saw how the food delivery business exploded, how there were complaints about uh, how places were exploiting the suppliers and the food delivery service was taking all the profit. All of that happened over the last couple of years. So you emerge from COVID from a time of incredible growth in the particular industry of delivered food, and now you're going to have to win back your market share in a world where you maybe have more competitors than you did three years ago. Right. The the thing you want to do 
when good times is you want to build that war chest. You want to build that savings. You want to uh, fortify that balance sheet and you want to remodel your stores and you want to get everything in really good shape with your, your quality, your people, your staffing, your culture, your hard assets. So that when things turn uh, down, uh, you've got some reinforcements. Uh, and Papa John's did just the opposite of that. Rob Lenz, the CEO of Papa John's, got completely caught on his heels when the COVID, um, you know, euphoria uh, subsided. And the last thing you want to do in the in the middle of all this is lose that quality of positioning. The Antonio, friend of mine, he's been hundreds of dollars. Uh, John, I think we, we lost you a bit there. Sounds like your cell phone is breaking up, but we've come to the end of the segment anyway. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Papa John Schnatter, founder and former CEO of Papa John's Pizza. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. In December, LastPass, a popular app for managing passwords, suffered a security breach, potentially exposing millions of people's personal information. When a business created to protect passwords gets hacked, it's a reminder how vulnerable our sensitive information can be when stored in the cloud. And for businesses who need to protect data, security is a top concern. To help prevent security risks, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud recently introduced a password manager. Jump Clouds Antoine Jabara. Businesses cannot always rely on an offline solution as users need to share and access passwords across multiple devices, and cloud based options aren't ideal either. Jump Cloud Password Manager takes a hybrid approach, storing data on users' devices and seamlessly syncs user vaults to multiple devices in an end to end encrypted way. This addresses some of the limitations of cloud based systems and bridges the gap between convenience and security. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you want to support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. 
I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. Our vets need you. I'm a quadriplegic. I'm definitely at risk with my diminished lung capacity. I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't leave the house because I have a compromised immune system. I'm very concerned about would there be a bed for me? Would there be a ventilator for me? Would I be able to survive something? It's, it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's a heavy... It's a heavy moment. This is a war. This really is. Our veterans fought for us. Let's fight for them. I am so grateful for the PVA. They're making sure that we have all of the food and supplies that we need right now. We all got to help each other right now. We can't get through this by ourselves. It's with profound gratitude that you're going to be saving our lives. To find out how you can help, please go to helppva.org. That's H-E-L-P-P-V-A dot org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. The Silicon Valley bank collapse put me in mind of some articles that I wrote long ago, back when I first became a professional writer. This would be you know, 12, 13 years ago now. And I was fascinated by a concept I came to call chumponomics. And I think we're back into the realm of chumponomics here with the Silicon Valley collapse and some of the other things that are happening in the banking industry right now. Chumponomics is a system that only works because the chumps play by the rules. If you don't play by the rules, you're okay. You'll be taken care of. You're covered. You're too big to fail. You'll be rescued. You'll be bailed out if you don't do what you were supposed to do. But the little guy, the chumps, they're expected to just keep ponying up. They have to follow all the rules. They get micromanaged. They have to pay their taxes and their fees. And all they can do is kind of grind their teeth in helpless fury as they watch the people that didn't play by the rules or expect some kind of a bailout get it at their expense. And you're left seething, wondering why, oh, why did I ever do things right? 
Now, the reason I started thinking about this many years ago was because there was a fascinating case of a rural community where everybody who lived in this community was expected to pay for fire and rescue services. It was a fee they had to pay because they're way out in the sticks, they're up in the hills, and it's hard for the fire department to get there. They didn't really have their own fire department. So the deal was that you had to put some money on the table every quarter, and that way the firemen from the local city, the closest one to you, they would get out there if you had a fire. And they would come out and help you. And it wasn't cheap. You know, they had to pay a substantial surcharge for this service. Well, there was this one guy who didn't pay the fee and his house caught fire. And the fire department duly followed the procedures and they did not go out there and help him. The guy's house wound up burning down because he hadn't paid his fee. And this became very controversial. It was a big story at the time. This is a long time ago now. But of course, a lot of people had, I'm sure hearing this, you might have this reaction and say, well, good, good heavens, why wouldn't they put the guy's fire out? You know, his house is on fire. How can you not help somebody who's having that level of a crisis? And on the other hand, you had people who said, well, he knew the deal. He knew he had to pay for this. He knew he was expected to maintain a fee and he didn't pay it. And he's patting himself on the back thinking, ha ha ha, those chumps, all those people that live around me, they paid up. So they've got the fire service covered. I'm not going to pay by the rules, but uh, I still expect to be helped when my house catches fire. And it was an extreme case. You're talking about a fire, you know, it's a dangerous thing. Guy's whole property gets ruined. His life was, was doubtless very negatively affected by this. So you have some human sympathy and you think that we ought to take care of a situation like this. And in most places, you know, you don't really have pay for play fire services. You, you pay your taxes. It's part of the deal wherever you live. This was a very unusual situation that was necessitated by the geography, but still you, you look at it and you say, well, human response, they should have put the fire out business response. Yeah, I get why they didn't, you know, he did, he didn't pay the fee and he knew the rules. He was not in any way confused. They actually interviewed the homeowner. He knew perfectly well that he was expected to pay for this. He wasn't ignorant of it. So after that, more situations that reminded me of chumponomics would happen over the years. There was an instance involving water some years later, where in a particular district of the country, there were people who weren't paying for the necessary water bills. They were refurbishing their water system. They were supposed to pay a certain fee. Some people didn't pay it and their water got shut off and they were just beside themselves like, oh my God, my water got shut off. How, how could you do this to me? I need water. I need water to live. And then people said, well, yeah, but you didn't pay the fee and everybody else around you did. They're, they're all out the money. You're not, but you're supposed to get a free ride, you know, because you didn't play along. And now into the modern age, you know, going on and on over the years, what would be a better example of that than Joe Biden's student loan debacle? This, this ridiculous, unconstitutional, totally illegal scheme he hatched in order to get the kids to vote for him by promising to pay off their student loans. He's going to give them student loan relief. For one thing, just right out of the gate, the only only reason their student loans are as ridiculously high as they are now, and they are insane. If you're a student with a loan right here listening now, I feel you. I, I can look at the amount of money that you're paying, and it's astronomical. Why? One word. Obamacare. The reason your student loans are so high is because Obamacare nationalized the student loan industry. That flooded the system with gigantic amounts of money, and the colleges hoovered it all up by raising tuition through the roof and spending like there's no tomorrow, and now you kids are stuck with gigantic bills. And then the party that did that to you comes along in the person of Joe Biden and says, hey, vote for me, and I'll relieve that debt burden that we dumped on you in order to make Obamacare look like less of a boondoggle than it was. Uh, so vote for me, and I'll take some of that debt 
burden off your back. And that leaves the chumps seething in helpless fury. If you paid your student loan, you were diligent. You took out a loan that you could afford. You weren't crazy about your borrowing. You were responsible when you went to college. You went to a school you could afford. You took out a loan and you diligently repaid it over the years. And that wasn't cheap. took a long time for you to pay those student loans off. And then here comes the story. Hey, these kids right now that have gigantic debt, eh, they're going to get debt relief to pay for their votes. Transparent vote buying scheme, the most obvious one in, in modern history, just corrupt as hell right up to its neck. And you've paid your loans and you're seething because Joe Biden didn't care about your vote. He didn't offer you any goodies. He didn't offer you any Tootsie Rolls in order to get your vote. He's going to pay somebody else's student loans off to get their vote. And then it turned out to be a gigantic scam because everybody with half a brain watching this knew he didn't have the authority to do it. So it's going to be hung up in court forever and it probably never happened. But what a pure expression of the chumponomics ideal that was. You paid your student loans, you played by the rules, you're a chump. And it happened during the mortgage crisis. We've been talking a bit about the 2008 crisis today because the SVB collapse has unpleasant echoes of that epochal financial debacle. And back during that time, you had people that demanded mortgage relief. And there was a plan. I don't know if you remember this, but back during the 2008 crisis, the 2008 presidential election, there were plans floating around where they were doing the same thing Biden did with student loans much later. They were saying, oh, we will give you mortgage relief. We'll, we'll just uh, we'll ding the taxpayer and we'll pay off some your mortgage. So vote for us. And I remember when those schemes were being proposed and I would see people that were diligent mortgage holders that were just erupting in fury. They're like, well, what about me? I've been paying my mortgage my whole life, fair and square. I've never been late. I've paid every nickel for this property that I bought. And you're just going to give me the back of your hand and hand a bag of my money to somebody else because you want their vote because they irresponsibly brought a house they couldn't afford because you irresponsible Democrats forced the banks to loan them the money. And then the irresponsible bank cooked up payment terms that left them in the lurch. So somehow me, the guy that's playing by the rules, I'm the one that has to pay for all this in the end. I mean, chumponomics is the way we do things now. The entire system in so many ways that surrounds us today is predicated on the idea that some people are chumps and they will just do the right thing and play by the rules and pay the bills and keep their heads down. And meanwhile, other people who fail and cheat and lie and maybe make mistakes, you know, some, sometimes the people on the winning end of chumponomics are not nasty people. They're not exploitative. But the bottom line is they didn't play by the rules but they're being relieved of the consequences at the expense of the people who did. Now, maybe this was inevitable once we began progressive taxation and we enshrined this idea that some people have to pay more so that other people can get by. I mean, maybe this is just a natural uh, part of our collapse into collectivism. But as you see it more and more around yourself, and now you see it happening with this SVB bank that was too big to fail, you just keep wondering, when are they going to stop rating us chumps? I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today on The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.